Hello and welcome. This is the Bits vs. Byte podcast. I'm your host, Armin Grigic, and today with me is Jussi Likunen. He is uh, the director for space and uh, new technologies at Reactors. So welcome, Jussi. Thank you, Amir. Um, what I would like to get into uh, first is uh, a little bit about your background. So could you tell a little bit about that and also how you got to work at Reactor? Sure. Um, a key part of my identity is, of course, that I'm a father of two Girl Scouts. But uh, my professional background is being a systems engineer. I've been working on secure and fault-tolerant systems for about 25 years now in one way or another. I'm an old open source advocate and kernel hacker as well. Oh, cool. <laughs> I was originally hired from school to Nokia Networks, but um, the uh, bureaucracy got better off me quite soon. So I established my own consultancy company that I ran for over a decade. Then I sold the business to a, a bigger company and uh, I was then the CTO in that company for about three years. But then the opportunity presented to join Reactor, and, and I kind of grabbed it uh, because uh, Reactor had a reputation of being a really innovative company with super talented people. And that was now seven years ago, and it feels like I just started yesterday. <laughs> and what, uh, what made you make that step? Because when, uh, when a lot of people start their own company, uh, they tend to to keep that going and uh, keep in that role and not uh, go work for another company anymore. So what, what was the reasoning behind that? Uh, well, uh, there were two distinct steps with distinct reasons. And uh, uh, when I decided to sell my own company was when my first child was being born. I just wanted mm -hmm. to free up more of more of my time to stay at home with the kids when they were young. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense. Uh, running your own company is just not a nine to five job. Yeah, it takes up all your time uh, in, in, in every kind of way. So w could you explain a little bit about what, uh, what Reactor does? Uh, well, Reactor is a consultancy and a design agency. We help our customers to create new business with digital solutions. In practice, this means business consultancy, and then we help our customers to develop digital services and products. Hmm. We're a and very private group, and for us, success kind of means that money starts to flow to our customers' bank accounts, and preferably in a way that also makes the world a bit better place to live in. Mm. And you are based in uh, in Finland, right? Uh, we're originally from Finland, and that's where our headquarters are in Helsinki. But mm -hmm. over the years, uh, we've expanded quite a bit, and uh, we have offices in New York in the US, in Amsterdam, Netherlands, uh, then in Tokyo in Japan and uh, Dubai in the United Arab Emirates and also a fresh office in Stockholm and Sweden. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. So uh, it's a pretty much a global company right now. Uh, that's also the, the way we got uh, linked up. Uh, I saw a post on LinkedIn about uh, you talking about what you were doing with, uh, with space and space ventures. 
Uh, and I would like to get into that a little bit because, uh, as you said, uh, Reactor is uh, uh, you do all kinds of business consultancy, but also are an agency. Uh, and then I saw some things about uh, some ventures into space. So how how did that come about? Uh, that, of course, is the next step in our globalization endeavors. No, all kidding aside, uh, there are no customers <laughs> in space yet. Yeah. Uh, but being a consultancy, our customers expect us to bring in the latest and greatest tools and methods. And this is why we spend quite a lot of effort to understand what's the next big thing in tech that could benefit our customers. And one of the things that we were tracking was the space industry with SpaceX, uh, Blue Origin, and the rapidly maturing small satellite scene, we saw that there is a bit of a revolution brewing. And it was interesting to think what that could enable for our customers. And then we, in fact, we, we started to get contacts from our customers, especially in the aviation and marine sectors, asking that could we solve certain use cases for them that we realized this will require space assets to implement. So we kind of had both a breakpoint in technology and we saw initial business demand for what that new technology could potentially enable. So you can kind of see how a consultancy and agency who wants to be able to bring the best possible solutions to their customers would uh, delve into this scene and start to learn how to actually build space-based services and solutions. So what, what kind of uh, challenges did those clients present? So what, what were they asking from you for, in a use case sense? Um, uh, in order of client confidentiality, I'll talk in generalities, I hope. Yeah, that's exactly. Okay. Yeah, sure. Uh, but the, the kind of needs... Uh, Basically, one thing to understand is that space is a tool to scale. If, if, for example, you need to be able to communicate over a wide area or collect data from large areas, uh, then you need a very high-flying platform to cover wide areas. And the kind of use cases that we were approached related to, for example, asset tracking or being able to provide telemetry information from remote machinery uh, from places where there is no existing connectivity and uh, it would be extremely expensive to build any kind of connectivity. Uh, and also kind of use cases where you want to monitor areas around the planet very frequently without having to install physical infrastructure into those target areas. Yeah, exactly. So uh, things that I'm, I'm thinking about would be like uh, remote areas where you just can't get connectivity to, right? So somewhere in the middle of the ocean, for example. Yeah, it's surprisingly difficult to extend the telecom network to the middle of the ocean. Mm. So that's one, yeah. of the, one of the things that you could get, get into, right? Absolutely. That, that's one of the things. Uh, when you go to space, it allows you to cover large areas uh, without the need of installing any on-ground infrastructure. And it is surprisingly with this new space technology, it's cheaper to go through space than to go through 
very expensive ground infrastructure. Yeah, that, that's crazy because when you think about space and think about uh, kind of the rockets that need to to propel everything into space, you would say you would say that that's really expensive. Uh, yeah. But uh, basically, it's it's less expensive than just building something in the ocean. Yeah, and that that's exactly the thing. What this uh, huge breakpoint in technology we saw that is enabling with uh, SpaceX creating reusable rockets, they're able to drive down the cost of access to space quite significantly. Mm -hmm. And then with the advent of these very small satellites, uh, also the cost of the spacecraft themselves are like one hundredth of what they used to be. So whereas traditionally, if you wanted to have a small satellite, it would cost you in the order of a hundred million dollars. But now you can get one uh, quite capable spacecraft for one million or even much less. Yeah, that's that's an order of magnitude lower. Coming off the price and that's significant. So what um, to to get back to the, the way you started, because I can imagine when you start doing these kind of things or actually getting these kind of questions, you uh, of course, are starting to think about how can we do this. Um, so, how did you start? Because that that's that seems uh, uh, for someone that I, I don't know enough about uh, shooting something to space, but I can imagine that a lot of people don't. Uh, how do you uh, do? You like work together with other companies to to get that working? How, how did that start? Yeah, yeah, indeed. We we started from the exact same point. We had no idea how to build a spacecraft or how to get that into space. So <laughs> that was the baseline. And we had a lot of science fiction aficionados, but that doesn't really work. In <laughs> that the doesn't world. count. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So as we obviously had no clue how to build an actual spacecraft, uh, that's why we approached the local Alto University, who had a satellite lab. And they had been developing these new kind of very small nanosatellites since 2010. And luckily the team there was happy to help us. And in that process, they actually, they saw the business potential as well. And they decided to create a spin-off company. We funded them through our ventures arm, and we worked together with them to develop their Hello World mission platform the spacecraft platform, the ground segment, the mission control systems. So the guys who came from the university satellite lab uh, brought to the table uh, their skills on actually building space hardware and knowing how to procure launches and so forth. And we brought our understanding of the customer needs, the system design expertise, the software expertise. And together we were able to build something pretty neat. Yeah. So to to get into that, so how big are those satellites when you talk about nano satellites? Um, when when the satellite sizes are divided by weight, so between one and ten kilograms, we're talking about nano satellites, mm-hmm. and uh, you can think of one to few milk cartons. That's that's the size scale. Yeah. So um, when you when you look at that, so you you talked about that uh, that kind of hell world thing. So uh, I know that you already uh, you did already send something into space, right? Oh yeah, we've had uh, the uh, platform test uh, spacecraft uh, 
on orbit since last November, mm-hmm. and it's been operating perfectly. It has exceeded pretty much all of our expectations on performance and stability. Mm. And uh, that that uh, mission has two purposes. First is to be the test flight for the reusable platform, the kind of satellite bus that is very easy to use in different types of missions. And also it's a, a space qualification flight for a hyperspectral imager from VTT. Uh, it's the first of its kind in space, a miniature hyperspectral imager. It's a really cool device, but then that gets into the science department already. <laughs> so what, what, and the satellite have been working really well. So, so what does that do? So what can you actually do with that platform that you have right now? So you have uh, one platform, but you also have that imager. So what does it actually provide right now? Well, uh, the imager is, of course, uh, the interesting bit, uh, or always in the space systems, the payload is the interesting bit because that is what enables some actual use case. The platform is just like in a car you need the chassis, you need the wheels, you need the brakes, you need the engine for the car to be able to go anywhere. The satellite bus is kind of that that infrastructure of the car. Hmm. But the interesting bit is the payload. And uh, the hyperspectral imager allows us to see chemical composition of the imaging target. This means that we can, for example, fly over Africa and we can determine the moisture levels of the farming experiments in the Sahara Desert. Crazy. I see that in within a few minutes here in Finland in our mission control. Yeah, so how, how, does, that, how does that work? So how do you actually communicate with, uh, with something that's uh, hovering about, above the Earth? So, because uh, a lot of people see the things on TV where, for example, NASA has some kind of satellite somewhere or a, or a rover on Mars. Or, and you're always like, okay, but how do they even communicate with su- such things? So h- how does that work in your case? Um, it works um, in most cases. It works in such a way that you have an antenna system somewhere on earth and uh, when you are able to point that antenna system to your spacecraft then you establish a radio communications link and because the planet is rotating and the spacecraft are flying often not synchronized to the planet's rotation it means that you often have quite short communication windows where the antennas are aligned to each other Mm. so you you can't connect with it the whole day around right no, okay. absolutely not. Uh, especially when we are talking about these uh, low-flying or low-Earth orbit satellites, uh, they need to be flying at 7.5 kilometers per second. That's about 27,000 kilometers per hour uh, in order to compensate for the gravitational pull of the planet. Mm. So they have to have this kind of centrifugal force. They have to have enough kinetic energy to not fall down. And uh, that means that they are not flying around the planet or they're not sticking in one place above the planet's surface. In fact, the spacecraft is flying around the planet in uh, 93 minutes. Hmm. And uh, when it's flying over Finland, where we have our ground station, we have... 10 to 11 minutes of time to communicate with the spacecraft and then it goes beyond the radio horizon. 
Hmm, that's crazy because you, so, sometimes people would say, yeah, you need to have full control. You, you need to be able to do everything because everything moves so fast currently, right? Because I can send yeah. an email and in one second it will be uh, at your doorstep, right? But in this case, it's totally different. Yeah, that's why you have to have some level of autonomy on your spacecraft because they are going to spend quite a bit of time beyond your radio uh, link reach yeah yeah because uh, what what i was thinking about is so uh all this kind of software to do these communications and stuff like that is that kind of uh, everything built from scratch or are there things that are uh, you can't call it off the shelf i think but how how does how did you get into the process so did you need to create all that yourself or how did that go well for us we are kind of crazy and uh, we need to <laughs> build something by ourselves end to end so that we understand how everything works in the pipeline. Mm. So uh, we actually even physically built the antennas and the power amplifiers and wrote the software. Uh, we used SDR or software defined radio modules that you can buy off the shelf, but you have to kind of program them yourself. Mm -hmm. So we used as much of the shelf stuff as we could, but we built the whole pipeline and, and had to do some welding and sawing and a lot of actual physical work to build the antenna solutions and so forth, in addition to the spacecraft. What was that also because I can imagine when you are doing these kinds of things that you need to hire specific people for this this job these jobs as well. Uh, how did that go? Because I can imagine that, uh, um, for example, okay, soldering and stuff like that. Uh, those are things that are uh, pretty much things that uh, a lot of people can learn. But all these other stuff about the antennas and stuff like that, I can imagine that that's a little bit more specialistic, if you can call it like that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and of course it helped that the Space Lab team had some experience on this, mm. but our approach was not to hire any specialists. Rather, we used our own seasoned experts who had been working previously in the automotive or aviation or robotics industries, and uh, we specifically wanted to learn the space scene. So we did not hire any specific radio experts or space experts. We wanted mm -hmm. to learn all this stuff. And that means that, uh, for example, my team, we all had to uh, pass the uh, amateur radio exams and get all sorts of permits. And we spent quite a few nights and evenings studying MIT course materials on things like orbital dynamics and spacecraft systems engineering. Yeah, that's that's interesting in in so many ways because normally you would say, okay, let's get the brightest people in the room f that have all these all this information already and uh, get them together. But uh, you chose that different approach. So was that uh, more because you uh, had the feeling that uh, it could also lead to different insights than people that are from a space industry, for example? Absolutely. That was exactly the point, because we were seeing this change in the philosophy on how space technology is being built that enables the dramatic cost reduction. We figured that most likely we have 
something that we can bring into the field that nobody there yet knows quite well, how to do quite well. And uh, in fact, when we think about the learnings from uh, from the projects, uh, it was quite clear that we had some surprises on the weird things related to operating in space, but also it was quite surprising for us how simple and kind of old technology was being used in the space environment. Uh, things that we were using in the automotive industry like a decade ago, components mm -hmm. that were really familiar to us, and we were able to bring in, introduce development methods and design practices and uh, architectural design principles from other industries that were apparently not prevalent or at least widely known in the space side. So what, what so, are some of those examples for, for those, those things that you did differently than what a normal space agency, for example, would do? Uh, one of the key things was um, designing the system to be failure tolerant. Uh, so that's a fundamental design principle. Traditionally, space systems are designed to be like triple redundant everything so that they cannot fail. We, on the other hand, took the design approach that it's okay for any part of the system to fail. It knows how to recover and everything else can continue uh, while, while that one part is rebooting. This is a similar approach than the SpaceX engineers take. Hmm. So they also design failure-tolerant systems, and that allows them to use much cheaper components and development processes. So uh, how, how, do you, how, do you, how do you look at those, those kind of companies when we're talking about SpaceX? So are those companies that you, for example, in the future could work with, or are they competitors? How, how do you look at those? We're definitely looking, for, uh, looking at SpaceX as a potential customer and also a service provider because they are providing the cheapest most versatile launches on the planet at this point yeah so you could for example uh, see that as uh, a platform where you could la launch from right use their rockets yes. or something else absolutely so um getting into uh, some of the more interesting things that you could do in space so you've already done this this hello world so what's what's the kind of next step in the whole process um well there are two branches of the next steps and um, one of the branches is the space lab which if you recall spun off as a separate company and they're currently working on four different spacecraft in different stages of, of building, like, like the Sunstorm for the European Space Agency or the W-Cube and so forth. And then there's the agency track, stuff that we're doing here at, at Reactor Innovation side. Uh, and um, at the innovation side, we focus on more on helping our customers approach their business expansion by applying space technology. Hmm. And then the Space Lab guys are more focused on actually building the bits and pieces needed to implement that. Okay. So um, looking, looking at it from a use case perspective, so what are the, some of the things that you see that... Uh, that could be a thing in the future, other than uh, the things that you already uh, have done before? 
Well, one of the things that is going to happen within the next few years is the low Earth mm-hmm. orbit telecommunication service. Mm-hmm. SpaceX, OneWeb, even Jeff Bezos is betting on that. So there are billions invested in these endeavors, and uh, they're going to enable quite a lot of new kind of operations on the planet when they realize. And uh, we're also working with um, industry companies involved in that game. So, so that's one area where we are clearly involved in thanks, thanks to our insight into how to make these things very e- efficiently. Uh, another thing that keeps popping up uh, is precision agriculture, and that's going to need a wide area hyperspectral imaging solution that still isn't up up in the sky today. So that that's something that will definitely happen at some point. It's mostly a race of who gets there first. Yeah. So those those telecommunication uh, satellites, if you can call them like that. So are those the things that they are talking about in the news right now for? getting broadband into for example internet or broadband into uh, into remote areas yeah exactly so mm-hmm. spacex starlink and uh, OneWeb's constellation and uh, jeff bezos's kuiper uh, systems and so forth mm, interesting interesting so uh, there's one other thing that uh, that i was thinking about uh, because you hear all these all these kinds of things of a lot of satellites orbiting the earth and a lot of space trash if you can call it like that uh, so how do you how do you think about that because say for instance this hello world platform is is done you it's done it's, it's run its course uh, how, how do you look at that how how do you solve those kind of problems yeah that's uh, again here we come to design principles the hello world is designed to be uh, self-destructing so it has mm-hmm. uh, designed in uh, obsolescence mechanism uh, the spacecraft is specifically designed to not include any uh, uh, toxic chemicals or heavy metals and that means that in about nine years of its lifetime it is going to re-enter the atmosphere and being so small it will burn completely to ash leaving no com- no bits and pieces behind so when we have this low flying spacecraft we can utilize uh, simple design principles to eliminate the junk problem. But for some use cases, we need to fly on higher orbits where you can't use these self-destruct mechanisms. You have to have specific deorbiting mechanisms. And I think it, it would be important for those to become mandatory somehow uh, because all the business potential that can be achieved via space-based services becomes impossible if the space junk problem becomes much worse than what it is today. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that's uh, it, it's something that that comes up in the news sometimes. Like uh, there's so many satellites orbiting the Earth, and uh, some of them just get decommissioned, and they're just still flying around. Uh, and uh, and no, nobody's doing anything with them. Uh, and I can imagine, uh, especially with these new kind of companies coming up, that that problem would be worse and worse if you don't get any regulations on those, right? Absolutely. And it's kind of a, a challenge that there is no effectively no regulation in space. 
Space mm. is home on every man's land. And uh, we have like the radio frequency regulation uh, influencing how we can use radio communications that influence systems on the planet's surface. Then we have the aviation law that influences what we do from zero to 100 kilometers up. But beyond the von Karman line, when where space begins, there's only the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, which basically just says that, hey, let's not break each other's toys. <laughs> and that's, that's all we have. Beyond that, it's a complete wild west. Nobody has authority. And the international treaties are very, very light that exist. Hmm. Yeah, that could be uh, a problem. <laughs> that could definitely be it. a problem. Uh, I see a clear need for international agreements on some kind of space traffic management. And that's something that's high on the agenda in the European Space Agency as well. Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, this is not just one uh, governing body's uh, uh, problem in that sense. It's it's all of our, uh, it's all of us, right? I mean, I mean, if someone, I, I don't know, if in India or in China, which there are a lot of uh, a lot of ventures into into space from their sides as well, uh, if they 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 all should agree to that right it's it's one thing that should all uh, as you said that treaty that's already there yeah uh, it it is there and probably uh, they uh, they all follow that but uh, it's still not up until the level that you're going to get into now with all these extra satellites coming into into play right exactly that that treaty was uh created to an era where you had basically two superpowers capable of sending maybe one satellite per five years up there. And now every university and small company is able to send uh, dozens of satellites up there. So it's a completely different dynamic. So um, I, I also saw something about uh, space as a service on your website. Uh, and mm -hmm. I was wondering about what that what that actually meant. Yeah, it's it's quite simple actually. You see, uh, beyond science and exploration, space is like I mentioned earlier. It's just a tool to scale existing solutions, like getting those hyperspectral imagers to cover the whole planet. And companies and organizations they are interested in outcomes and not in the operational details. <coughs> Sorry. So, so the idea is that um, if you need like 24-7 hyperspectral imagery of, say, fisheries around the globe, then Spacelab offers you a turnkey service for just that. You just get the data stream, and you don't need to worry about launch bookings or spacecraft operations or any of that. Okay, so is that is that a little bit uh, like uh, the thing that AWS wants to do with Ground Station, or is that, is that different from that? It's very much the same thing, and um, we are taking the uh, Amazon Ground Station service uh, really happily, uh, because that's something that will allow us to communicate with our spacecraft uh, much better. If they have a widely distributed ground station network that we can just use, then it multiplies our communication windows to the spacecraft exactly. orbiting the planet.
Because so, you have more spaces yeah. in the in the world where you can communicate from, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's interesting because that that's I think uh, especially when you uh, when you look at the internet, we already have these kind of cloud vendors where you could just take uh, take some some resources from and uh, use that. Uh, so it, it would be even easier for a lot of uh, a lot of companies or universities or whatever to to establish these kind of communications with satellites and stuff like that, right? Yeah, and if we had the AWS ground uh, ground station service back a few years ago, we probably wouldn't have built our own ground station at all. We would have just used the Amazon service because yeah, that's what exactly. we do when we. Uh, go to some of our customers and build their commercial services. If there's an existing Amazon or Azure service, we just use that if it makes sense. So yeah, that's so what would, we would have done for the ground station as well if that had existed back when we started. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, why reinvent the wheel if someone already has a good service for it to to just use? So absolutely, you... it was a clever, clever ploy from or a clever play from Amazon because I would imagine that uh, most of these space-based services will collect and process their data in some kind of cloud environment. And if you're using Amazon ground stations, it makes sense to use Amazon cloud services as well for the actual implementation of the service backend. Yeah. So they're they're a little they're ahead of the competition in that sense where they already see this becoming a, an actual business where they could profit from. Absolutely, yes. So uh, when we look at uh, how sp- how using space is going to impact uh, uh, our use of technology, uh, what do you see also happening? Some other things that are going to happen in the future. So really impacting the lives of just normal people on Earth. Um, I would say that um, you will see uh, technology use becoming easier. We still have regional challenges. You have areas where you don't have mobile phone coverage. Uh, You have areas where you can't use modern technologies for, let's say, agriculture or uh, other economic activities because you don't have the connectivity or you don't have up-to-date maps or up-to-date weather information and things like that. This low-cost space technology enables building better connectivity, building better situational awareness for automated systems especially. It's quite uh, impossible to create like autonomous ships if you don't have connectivity to them or if you can provide information about their surroundings to them and these space-based systems enable us to solve those type of use cases so i see both automation increase and the conveniences that we take for granted living in cities those conveniences will be available also in non-city areas yeah because uh, that's something that a lot of people maybe even forget Uh, i mean we are linked up to uh, satellites like the whole day, right? It's just something that you don't even think about. Uh, For example, if I turn on my GPS right now or I open Apple Maps or Google Maps, whatever, uh, you're communicating. You you don't even 
you don't even feel that, but you're doing that. Yeah, absolutely. I've actually half joked in some occasions that Pokemon Go is the ultimate space application. Because mm -hmm. you are using global maps that are produced from satellite data. You're using navigation from satellites. You are communicating over the cellular network, which is synchronized via satellites. And uh, you're also seeing weather information that's produced by satellites. Exactly. And that, that, that's the crazy part is that um, uh, you, th this, this is the best way of actually using technology, right? Where you don't even notice it, but it does just exactly. work. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly the point. Yeah, and I I think that's that's something that uh, I hope those those extra uh, nano satellites and things that are going to be up there uh, are going to provide right uh, where uh, you you use it for all kinds of things because say for instance everybody gets this this option to to do things in space right uh, you see what what happened when everybody got the 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 option to create an app uh, to publish it to an app store and stuff like that uh, imagine what uh, can happen if you have that that power in space where you have that skill as you said uh, that's actually a really great analogy yeah the power to create an app is now available for space. And I know that especially our Amsterdam office guys hate me for saying this, but I don't think space <laughs> is very sexy or exotic. Because to me, it's just a tool. It's a means of scaling these services. It's machinery in the background. Yeah, like but you have servers on Earth. That, that's the interesting part. Yeah. Yeah, the, the only the only interesting part is not on Earth. Uh, the, that's the the only difference. But basically, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, interesting because that that's that's something that I didn't think about when before we started. But that's that's the 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 ultimate goal for. Uh, I think it would be very cool to to build something that's actually running in space. That that uh, that blows my mind if you ever even think about that. Uh, but well, we did that, and it's running there, and it's working really well. And now it's like, mm, okay, so <laughs> it's not interesting anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, what I what I wanted to do, I wanted to ask you one more question, uh, just to wrap up. Yes. Uh, so, what are you most proud of since you started this whole venture? Uh, two things, really. Uh, one is the team at Reactor. I just love the way that uh, these uh, highly experienced people throw themselves behind a fairly crazy idea and just very systematically, in a very goal-oriented way, start to grind away. Of what's the biggest assumption here and then how do we validate that and work towards the, the end goal? And then you have something working in space. So I'm really proud of the team and, and that work ethic. And it's really like, I'm a fairly seasoned systems engineer, but I felt like a junior in that team. Hmm. The uh, other thing that I'm quite, quite proud of is uh, how well this was actually timed and how well this has been taken at the society level uh, because 
we were invited to uh, contribute to creating the Finnish space legislation, the uh, action program for the national space strategy and things like that. When we demonstrated that we have some new insight, we were invited into these processes. So I'm actually quite proud of the way that, at least in Finland, the government and the uh, national organizations reacted to this change. It wasn't like, hey, you're now doing something fancy, new, high-tech, go away, we don't want change. But rather how they embraced that, hey, you guys seem to understand what is changing and what does that mean. Please come and help us. I hope that makes sense to you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's 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 the the cool thing, right? Where you can see the impact that you're having uh, just by doing these kind of things. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I I I'm blown away. <laughs> I'm blown away. But that's more uh, because uh, this is just stuff that uh, for a lot of people, of course, as you said, when you actually do this, you're like, okay, uh, it, we we sent up something up in space. It's still a big feat, but uh it uh it kind of becomes ordinary right that's the that's the thing uh, but yeah, for a lot of people yeah. yeah for us it was primarily a validation that we have a hypothesis if yeah. we do things in a certain way if we bring our expertise at reactor uh that we have collected from different <laughs> industries over the years if we bring them to bear with this new space technology it gives us a tool to scale services in the global scope and yeah we did that so now we know that we can do that and then moving on yeah very cool very cool so um where can uh, people find more about uh, about this on the internet uh you should go to reactorspace.com to find out more about the uh, Hello World mission and uh, the spacecraft that the Space Lab is building. And if you want to know more about the business side and how to apply these principles in creating new business, then go to reactor.com and you can find a sub page there for business in space. Very cool. And uh, Reactor is uh, with a K. Just to uh, clarify for people, I'll put it in the, in the show notes as well. Yeah, sorry about that. I seem to be a popular no person today. <laughs> Very popular. Yes, exactly. So, uh, you see, thank uh, thanks a lot for your time uh, today. Uh, it was very cool to talk to you, and uh, very cool to see what you are doing. My pleasure. Thank you. And uh, of course, for the listeners, you can find the Bits vs. Byte podcast on uh, bitsvsbytes.com and also on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and uh, and of course, uh, LinkedIn. It's all Bits vs. Bytes. And I would like to thank you for listening and until next time.